good morning, church. Um, <clears throat> a few weeks ago, I had the privilege of being able to preach and to uh, share with you some thoughts on the church empowered uh, through the Holy Spirit. And today, we're going to be talking about the church expanded and how God uh, began to do something really amazing and that the gospel began to spread to the Gentiles, which, by the way, I, for one, am deeply appreciative of that fact, being a Gentile myself. You know, during the past several weeks, we've been walking through the book of Acts together, and we've been talking about the church. The, the book of Acts is really the, the, the story of, of the church, of the Lord Jesus Christ, and how its inception and its establishment and, and the expansion of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes we need to be reminded of the fact that church is not a building. It's not brick and mortar. And the church isn't even primarily or merely a, an organization the church is the body of Christ. Jesus is the head of that body. We are an organism, a living thing. And our goal is to exalt the Savior, to lift him up, to be Jesus to the world. The church belongs to Jesus. We talked about last time I was with you that Jesus said, I will build my church. It's his church. And in this bumper at the beginning of each message, we proclaim several things here. And it's real easy for us to, to see these words over and over again and just kind of let those words just kind of pass over our heads. I want you to think about them with me just for a moment, would you? This is what it said. Acts is the story of the desperately dependent fervently loving, sacrificially devoted, radically repentant, boldly proclaiming, globally impacting, joy-filled church unleashed. That's what the book of Acts is about. Now, folks, if we're not careful, we can easily let these words become as meaningless to us as an airline safety presentation. You know, you get on a plane and you're sitting there, you're waiting to take off, and they go through this spiel about how to buckle and unbuckle your seatbelt and, you know, what happens if you lose cabin pressure and all that. Now, be honest with me. How many of you ever really pay attention to that spiel? I thought so. <laughs> I don't pay any attention to it. I've heard it a thousand times. And it's just, you know, it just, it's meaningless to me. Now, if they got up there and said, you know, there's a 95% chance that we're going to crash on this flight, I might start paying attention. Obviously, they're not going to do that. Right? But you know what? We can do that in the church, too. And, and when we hear messages, we can, we can hear and see things that really should have a deep impact upon us and just let those words just kind of roll off our backs and not really think about the implications of those words to our life or how we should view ourselves as the bride of Christ. By the way, 
When someone says, I love Jesus, and hopefully you would say that, when someone says, I love Jesus, you know what? They should follow it with, not only do I love Jesus, I love what Jesus loves. And do you know, he loves his bride, the church. He loves us. We're his bride. He's not looking for another bride. He loves us so much, he laid down his life for us. He wants to make us holy, pure. So make no mistake about it. Jesus loves his bride, the church, and we ought to love his bride as well. You know, when I first began serving as a, in student ministry, as a student ministry worker nearly 40 years ago, I was given an assignment to oversee a department of 8th and ninth grade young people. I was in a large church in Memphis at the time. Uh, there were about 90 students just in my department alone. And uh, for whatever reason, God granted me favor with that group of young people and, um, and, and allowed me to, to make a strong connection with them. But you know what? There was a group of about 10 Eighth grade girls that nearly drove me nuts. I say, why, Brother Gene? I don't know any other way to say this, but they were mean-spirited. They were. They were very much caught up in this worldly mindset of exclusivism. They had a little clique that allowed no one to enter and no one to leave their group. Their little comfort zone. They actually practiced techniques of manipulation and control with one another. <laughs> it, it was amazing. I, I couldn't hardly believe it. But you know what? I dare say that most of those were not believers based upon their actions, based upon their spirit. The thing that really set this group of girls apart from the rest was their insecurity and their unwillingness to, to open themselves up and develop relationships outside of their little group and their comfort zone. You know what? It's sad to say, but churches can be like that. Whether knowingly or unknowingly, we can become so self-focused uh, in our perspective of what we think the church should be, that in essence we communicate to others, if you're not like us, you're not welcome. But that spirit in any church or any group of Christians is in complete contradiction to what the Scripture teaches about the church. The big idea this morning, the thing I want you to get, is that the gospel is universal. The gospel is universal and inclusive of all peoples. I mean, that's why Jesus commanded his disciples to go into all the nations and to make disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, I've... I've met believers in Africa, I've met believers in India, I've met believers in South America and Central America and Europe, Thailand and Laos. You know what? They're just like me. They may speak a different language, they may have a different culture, they, you know, 
there's a lot of things that are different, but inside, in their spirit, they're like me. It's amazing. It's beautiful. It's wonderful because we share the same Holy Spirit. The gospel is universal to all people. You know, even the church in Jerusalem, the early church, struggled with this same mentality of superiority and exclusivism. If you were here last week, Pastor Mike talked about some of the barriers that sometimes happen in churches, and certainly this was true in the church there in Jerusalem. And one of the barriers that existed was the barrier of prejudice toward the Gentile people. They literally thought that the gospel was meant for the Jews only. And that's how they practiced it. In fact, if you were to read the first half of, of Acts chapter 11, verses 1 through 18, what you would see there is Peter is called on the carpet and is brought before the, the council there in Jerusalem, and he has to give a defense for speaking the gospel to a, a Gentile, the centurion Cornelius and his family. Something that was God-ordained, this encounter. I mean, God is one that set that up. You remember the story? How God spoke to Cornelius and said, and said send to Joppa, ask for Peter. He'll come and explain to you how you can have a relationship with me. And then he has to go to Peter, and, and three times he, he gives him this vision of, of, of these things, and he says, what I've called clean, don't you call unclean. Speaking of the Gentiles. It took some convincing to get Peter to go. Even though there's clear evidence that the Christian faith was beginning to spread to the Gentiles, it wasn't until Acts eleven nineteen that we see the first Gentile church established. And it was in a place called Antioch. Now that's where we're going we're gonna to read here this morning, verses 19 through 26. And uh, actually, Acts eleven nineteen it literally picks up where Acts 8, 4 ended. So would you please turn to 8, 4 just for a moment, and we're going to see how even though a period of time had passed by, perhaps several years by this time, literally in Acts eleven nineteen it's picking up where 8, 4 left off. And it says this in 8, 4, Therefore, those who were scattered, talking about Christian Jews, refugees that were scattered out of Jerusalem into various places uh, around the world. Those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. Now that sounds as if the gospel's going out into the world, doesn't it? Now turn over to Acts 11 18, and 19. We're going to get a little bit clearer picture of what he's saying here. It says, now those who were scattered, talking again about these Christian refugees going out after the persecution that arose over Stephen, traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, doing what? Preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. Can you believe it? What's that all about? What were they thinking? So we come to this place called Antioch. It was a large metropolitan city. It was, the, it was the third largest in the Roman Empire at that time, next to Rome and Alexandria. 
it was noted for its culture and for its commerce. And there was a Roman author back then by the name of Cicero, and he described Antioch as a place of learned men and liberal studies. However, the city of Antioch was a very wicked place as well, full of pagan worship, sexual immorality, even temple prostitution. In fact, the city of Antioch was so vile that, uh, that the Romans, a Roman satirist once wrote that the Arantes River, which was near Antioch, emptied its garbage into the Tiber River near Rome. What was he saying? What did he mean by that? The inference being that the culture of Antioch contributed to the debauchery and wickedness of Rome. And it was in this context that we read that they were preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. Revealing the exclusive nature of the Christian church at that time. But there's a, <laughs> there's a, sh a shimmer of light here in verse 20. It says, but some of them, talking about these Christian refugees, were from Cyprus and Cyrene. In other words, they had moved from Jerusalem. They'd gone to Cyprus and Cyrene, and they'd gotten engaged in the, in the Greek culture and, and with the Gentiles there and whatnot. And it says, who, when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, preaching the Lord Jesus. <laughs> you see, because they had gotten into a, a predominantly Gentile area and began hanging out with Gentiles and, and getting to know these Gentile people on a real personal level, they were more open to preaching to the Gentiles than the native Palestinian Jews were. Why? Because they lived among the Gentiles. They understood their culture. They recognized the hopelessness of these people and they began to develop a burden for them. Verse 21 says, the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. Let me just make a couple points here. First of all, this saying, the hand of the Lord was with them, you see that scattered throughout the scriptures, and it usually refers to one, one or, or, or another thing. Usually it refers to the hand of the Lord with, regarding judgment, or it can refer to the hand of the Lord regarding blessing. And in this context, it's talking about God's blessing. God came along and blessed these Jewish believers who began to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. And it says a great number of them believed and turned to the Lord. Not only did these Gentiles begin to grasp and accept the truth of the gospel intellectually... They were also transformed by it. They were changed by it. It says they turned to the Lord, which is a picture of repentance. I have two biblical truths I want to share with you this morning. This is the first one. Biblical truth number one. Genuine salvation is demonstrated by a faith which leads to repentance and good works. Listen, it says that they believe. That word believe is an old English word, and it literally means to live by. In other words, we live by what we truly believe. Adrian Rogers used to say, in the church, we practice 
what we truly believe. All the rest is just religious talk. Therefore, if the gospel does not change our life, we have simply entered into religion, not genuine conversion. See, in Peter's message in Acts chapter 3, he says, repent. Verse 19, he says, repent, therefore, and be converted, transformed, that your sins may be blotted out or wiped away, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Therefore, the word repent literally means to turn. It means to turn away from our sin and self-centered living and turn to God to serve Him only. It means that we have a change of heart toward God and a change of mind towards sin. It means that there's a change of direction in our life. It would be like if I was leaving here and I was wanting to go to Kingsport and I got out on Eastern Star and without thinking I, I, I took the on-ramp going toward Johnson City and suddenly I realized I'm heading in the wrong direction. What do I do? Do I just keep on going down I-26 hoping that maybe one, time, one day it'll lead me to Kingsport? No. No, I change my heart. I change my mind. I, I get off at the gray exit. I make a turnaround and I head back in the right direction again. That's what repentance is. In Matthew 1.21, we're told why the Messiah came. He came to save his people from what? Hell? No, their sins. Our sins. He came to save us from our sins. And the Apostle Paul in Romans 6, 1 through 2, makes it abundantly clear that those who have died to sins, we're no longer to live in them. We're not to keep on repeating the same sins over and over and over again. No, God came that we would be delivered, delivered from those sins, from those things that we're in bondage to. You know, my dad didn't come to faith in Christ until he was 35 years of age. My, my dad grew up on the wrong side of the tracks, so to speak. And he was rough as a cob. And if you don't understand that saying, you need to talk to someone a little older than you to explain it to you. My dad was rough as a cob. He was a profane man. He had a, a, a huge temper. He was a hard-living, hard-drinking, barroom-brawling kind of guy until he met Jesus. And Jesus changed him. It was amazing. I saw it. I saw it from his, with my own eyes. I saw God change my dad. And the amazing thing is... He got drunk only one time after he was saved. He, he got with some old buddies and stuff and started drinking. Got into a tussle, ended up in jail. And when he sobered up, he was so humiliated by that experience and so under conviction of the Holy Spirit, he never dropped, touched another drop of alcohol again. That's what it means to be transformed, to be changed, to be delivered from bondage of sin. You know, one problem we face in the American church today is too many people have been what I call inoculated by the gospel. 
They have a weak appreciation for it, but have never really caught the real thing. They come to church, they read their Bible, they may pray, but they never have experienced a change in their life. They may have religion, but they don't have Jesus. Listen, if there is no Jesus, there will be no change. And if there has been no change in you, there's no Jesus. Perhaps this is one reason why people get confused and think the church is full of hypocrites when really what they're actually seeing is a bunch of unsanctified sinners in our midst. Listen, Jesus talked about the wheat and tares, how the the genuine wheat is mixed in with with tares and and we can't hardly tell the difference between sometimes who, who really are believers and who are not. Therefore, it is possible just to know enough truth to foster a false sense of security that one has been saved, though there is no evidence of a changed life. A religious person can justify living like the world, embracing its values and morality, and still consider himself a Christian? Not not to be. What do the scriptures teach? Well, some verses that we're all familiar with. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, right? Not as a result of works. We can't earn our way to salvation. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, that no one should boast. Oh, we love those verses, and we quote them all the time, but we somehow want to skip over verse 10. Verse 10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You see, God first does his work in us so that he can do his work through us. But he can't work through us until his work in us has been accomplished. It speaks of a life that has been transformed by the gospel. I have a question for you this morning. Listen, I'm not trying to beat up on anybody. I'm just asking you to honestly examine yourself before the Lord. The Bible says we're supposed to do that, by the way. Here's a question. Have you genuinely repented of your sin? Turned away. And turn to God in utter utter desperation and dependence, yielding to Christ as Lord of your life? Or do you simply practice a religion of false hope? We go on to verse 22. It says, Then the news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. News of what things? News that the Gentiles were coming to faith in Jesus Christ. This news was literally shocking to the church in Jerusalem. They didn't understand it. They, they were wondering, what's going on here? So what they do about it? It says they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. Why did they send Barnabas? To investigate what's going on in this church, this, this church, so-called church in Antioch. Listen, I love the character of Barnabas. He's my kind of guy. 
He was loving. He was gentle. He was a generous man, full of the Holy Spirit. He kind of reminds me of my buddy Ed Leeson a little bit, except for the gentle part. In Acts chapter 4, he sacrificially gave his property to the church in Jerusalem to help those in need. In, chapter, in Acts chapter 9, he was, one of the, who, he was the one who courageously went to bat for Saul before the Jerusalem council. Saul had been converted. The Jerusalem council didn't trust him. Barnabas came to his aid, to his side. He was a sincere man of faith, full of the Holy Spirit. He was the first global missionary along with Paul. And he lived up to his name, which meant son of encouragement. He was the right man for the job. So verse 23 says, When he, Barnabas, came and had seen the grace of God at work there in this Gentile church in Antioch, he says he was glad. He wasn't incensed. He wasn't prejudiced. He wasn't saying, oh my goodness, what's the world coming to? No, he was glad and excited at what God was doing. And it says, and he encouraged them all that with purpose of heart that they should continue with the Lord. What was he doing? He was pastoring them. He was encouraging them. He was exhorting them to remain true to the Lord. And we come to verse 24 and it says that a great many people were added to the Lord. Obviously, there was this great harvest of souls taking place in Antioch. But then all of a sudden, Barnabas ups and leaves Antioch and goes to Tarsus. Why? Well, verse 25 says, Then Barnabas departed for Tarsus. Why? To seek Saul. You see, this harvest of souls in Antioch was so great Barnabas recognized he needed help, and so he began thinking, who can I get? Who, who can really help me work with this church in Antioch? And he said, Saul. Saul's the man. I need to go get him. So he travels to Tarsus, and he begins looking for him. And that was no easy task. This word said to, to, in the Greek, to seek Saul, really speaks of a laborious search. It's great difficulty. Remember the last time we saw Saul? He was fleeing from the city of Jerusalem because... The Jews, not the Christian Jews, but the Jews were wanting to kill him. So he escapes to Tarsus. And even in Tarsus, he is disinherited because of his Christian beliefs. And, and he's having to move around. And, you know, they, they didn't have forward mailing back in those days, you know. Barnabas sought Saul and he found him. By the way, some time had passed, several years perhaps, between Saul fleeing from Jerusalem until Barnabas found him there in Tarsus. What was Saul doing during that time? He wasn't sitting idly by. We learn from other sources, Saul was preparing himself for God's next assignment. I have a question for you. If you're a true believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, regardless of what you do as a vocation, or regardless of where God has, has led you uh, to serve, what are you doing to prepare yourself for the next assignment? Or is that kind of a foreign concept to you? Listen, God's not content just to leave us where we are. God always has something more for us. He's always wanting to, for us to grow and step out and out of our comfort zone and try new things and serve him in different ways. 
That may be here in the Tri-Cities. That may be on the mission field like the Costleys. Listen, the, what, one day they came to a conviction. You know what? We have skills. And we can serve the Lord in the comfort of the Tri-Cities. Or we can take those skills and we can, we can employ them in an area where they desperately need those skills. And they were willing to go. Saul was prepared. And when Barnabas called him, he, he went with him immediately we come to verse 26 we're going to wrap up with this verse it says and when he had found him he brought him to Antioch and so it was for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught a great many people now I want you I don't want you to miss this this one this next phrase it says and the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch You see, in my personal opinion, many in the church seem to have this idea backwards. Sometimes we think that, well, first you become kind of a nominal Christian, and then if you really get serious about this stuff, then you become a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. Problem, there's a problem with that. That's not the biblical model. These early believers were disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. That word disciple comes from the word discipline. It means a disciplined learner, a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it was because they were followers of the Lord Jesus Christ that they were given a name, the name of Christian. Now that word Christian is only found three times in, in all the New Testament here and Acts chapter 11, again in Acts chapter 26, when Paul is before King Agrippa, he's trying to persuade him to faith in Jesus Christ, and, and, and his answer is this, Paul, are you trying to convert me to become a Christian? The third time it's found is in 1 Peter chapter 4, when Peter's writing, and he says this, he says, if any of you suffer for being a Christian don't be ashamed. Let me tell you, that word Christian was not, was not a, a term of endearment. No, it was, it was given as a slam, as a slur against the followers of Jesus Christ. It was in essence they were saying, oh, you must be one of those Christians, little Christ's Jesus followers. You know what? As so often happens, the early church liked the moniker that was given them because it identified whose disciple they were. They were disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. Although the word Christians only found three times in the New Testament, the word disciples found over 250 times in the New Testament. The disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Listen, you take the term Christian today, you go out into the world and you ask 10 different people, what, how do you define a Christian? What is a Christian? You're liable to get any kind of an answer out there, 10 different kinds of answers. Well, I'm not Jewish and I'm, I'm not Buddhist and I'm not Hindu and I'm not Muslim and I'm not an atheist. I must be a Christian. Or... They might say, well, I was born in America. America's a Christian nation, therefore I must be a Christian. Or 
They might say, well, I grew up in the church and, and I read my Bible occasionally and I pray and stuff and, you know, sometimes I attend church and sometimes not, but I, I'm a Christian. Listen, none of those things will save you. Only repentance from sin, faith in Jesus Christ and surrendering to him as Lord. When Jesus went about preaching, he never sought out fans. He always sought out genuine followers. Listen, you might be sitting here, you might be a fan of the Lord Jesus. You like him? You think he's cool and there's some cool things to kind of go with, uh, the whole Christian thing, stuff like that. But are you a genuine follower of the Lord Jesus Christ? Listen, uh, an example of this was the rich young ruler. He was a good guy. He was rich. He was young. You know, he, was, he had influence. Man, he would, girls, he'd been the kind of guy, you know, a lot of you would want, want to marry, you know. But he came to Jesus, and he knew something was missing in his life. He couldn't quite put his finger on it. He comes to Jesus. He said, Lord, good teacher, he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, listen, he desired the right thing. He wanted eternal life. That's good. We should want that. That's right. He came to the right person. He went to Jesus, the Lord, the one true God. And he came asking the right question, what must I do? Listen, you don't become a Christian by osmosis. You have to do something. You have to make a choice. You have to choose to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And, you know, he made some excuses, said he was basically a good person and stuff. And Jesus challenged him and said, okay, listen, there's one thing you lack. Go sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and come follow me. What was Jesus asking of him, by the way? A radical commitment of his life to be a follower of Jesus Christ, to take up his cross daily and follow him. He desired the right thing. He came to the right person. He asked the right question, but he left making the wrong decision. says he went away sorrowful because he had many riches. Listen, Jesus... Ask the same of us. You may not be wealthy and you may not be young any longer and you may not have any real influence to speak of, but listen, true salvation is when we come to God and we give him everything that we are, everything that we have, all of our sin, all the nastiness, everything. And we, in return, receive his righteousness. I don't know about you. I think he got the wrong end of the deal. He got the short end of the stick. He gets all of our nastiness and we get his righteousness. Man, what kind of a deal is that? You can't beat that kind of a deal. And yet, sometimes we think, well, we'll just kind of play the game and kind of do the churchy thing and stuff like that and maybe we'll be okay and we don't have to give up anything. I want to enter into a time of, uh, of decision here. I ask you, would you please stand and I'm going to invite the worship team to, to make their way up to the stage. I'd like to ask you to stand. Just Would you enter into a, a prayerful attitude, heads bowed, eyes closed, I've got a few questions I want to ask you. 
as we wrap up this worship service. Again, I'm asking you just to be honest before the Lord with yourself. So I'm not asking you, are you perfect? None of us are perfect. The question is, are we striving toward the goal of becoming more like Jesus daily? Has, have you experienced a changed life? So here's a few questions I, I want to ask you. We need to ask ourselves, have I ever come to a point of revelation in my life that has caused me to confront my sin, seek repentance, and change my priorities? Second question. Can I say with all sincerity of heart that I am passionately pursuing a personal relationship with Christ or just a set of religious expectations that have no power? Third question. Do I really have a genuine hunger for God's Word? Am I seeking to grow in my understanding and application of His truth? Am I daily turning away from my sin and self-centered living while surrendering my will to Christ as Lord? Last question. Are the things of God more precious to me than the things of this world? Listen, if your answer was no to any of these questions, perhaps today Jesus may be calling you to himself And as the team leads us in worship, would you just reflect on these things? And if God stirs your heart, I'll tell you what to do here in just a moment. Let's worship together.